welcome to the 11th episode of The Morning Rage. I'm your host, Jen Prentice. And I'm your co-host, Lauren O'Keefe. And this is not your mom's morning show. It's a space where we pop off about all things culture, society, and politics in order to help you unpack your beliefs, feel more confident in sharing your voice, and today, talk about love, marriage, and holding space for our people with marriage and family therapist, Jennifer Jones. We have so much to talk about today, especially in the popping off and hot stuff categories because things have been a little crazy this last week. Especially within the Bachelor franchise. Oh yes, we have lots to say about the Bachelor franchise. We watched the Britney documentary. We've been following along with all the white male apologies going on this week. Lots of racism. Yeah. Lots of protesting to free Britney. Yes. Lots of white males doing stupid stuff. <laughs> so stay tuned for that. <laughs> all right. You want to talk about marriage, Lauren? I do. I think this is something we both have the authority to speak on. Absolutely. How long have you been married, Jen? It will be 12 years, I think, this June. Okay. Yeah, I'm coming up on seven. So... We're not as far along as... <laughs> Do you ever really, like, master marriage, though? Do you know what I mean? Like, maybe you'll get more used to each other's, like, quirks and habits, but... No, I do think there are different phases of marriage as you go along where things become harder. I think marriage actually just becomes harder the longer <laughs> you're married. <laughs> you just build better coping skills? Is that what you think? Yeah. I, I mean, I know we're going to talk about the uh, myths and the realities of marriage yes, uh-huh. a little bit later. And I do think, and I am very happily married, but I do think that people go into marriage thinking that maybe some of their problems are going to be solved if they can just be in a committed relationship. Oof. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. And that's something to say to all the single folks out there is that as much as you really want to find someone and have that person, wait till you find the the person that you think suits you well and you suit them well and you guys can really make a go of this thing because it's not worth doing it with the, with the I, I don't want to say the wrong person because I don't believe in that necessarily, but just in settling maybe for someone just so that you can have that person because it ain't easy and they're going to be there every day for the rest of your life. So you and better you figure it out. get caught in the middle of a global pandemic and they're really <laughs> going to be there. Every day, 24 (laughs) hours a day, seven days a week. It's true. Yeah, like you get into a relationship, marriage in your 20s. You've got a long road ahead of you, you know? I think we can get into maybe like the myths of marriage because I was thinking through a couple of these ideas that are popularized in our culture and we grow up hearing and then through our own experiences say, why do people keep saying stuff like this, you know? that question a lot. (laughs) The idea of your expectations. I mean, I think expectations in a lot of ways are kind of our demise in just our daily routines of what we think we can get done in a day versus what time actually allows for and what we expect from our friends and from our family and from our job. I think now more than ever, the idea that our partner, this person, like we said, the right person, should be everything for you. I think we used to, you know, we used to be a part of a village. Say we were like in a village of people and you had friends and family and all these different people that you went to for different needs and fulfillment in your life. 
we do this now. I mean, especially in our 20s, I think we have more time. So we have different friend groups. We have different religious groups. We have our families. And all of those people fulfill a different need for us. Then we get into a marriage and all of a sudden we're thinking, well, this person should be all the things for me now. Oh, yeah. I think there's a big myth that once you get married, that person will fill this void in your life or your life will start. So you end up placing all of these undue expectations on a partner to be everything to you Mm -hmm. and to help you figure out who you are. I think especially as women, honestly, that's a lie. That there would be validation in marriage from your partner. Right. Yeah. That, hey, ladies, let's grow up, let's date with the intention of finding a spouse who's going to, quote unquote, complete you. Once you get married, your life will start. And that is a myth. Absolutely. And I think that plays into this other one that I have (laughs) strong feelings about. This idea that your partner and you should make the other person a better version of themselves. I don't love this concept. I get that we should want to be a better person for our partner, but at the same time, the expectation that they are going to make me a better version of myself when realistically all I want my partner to be, and I think what's healthy, I'm speaking for myself obviously, but it's for them to just give me the space and accept me for exactly who I am. So make me more of myself, not necessarily a better version of myself. Accept me in the messy and the beautiful and the complicated feelings that I have versus just <laughs> trying to make me the best version of myself. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. I mean, we talked about this a little bit on our last podcast where we were giving you know some things that we wish we had known in our 20s to single women in particular. And one of the things that we said was that we wish we had spent that time really working on ourselves more, at least I do, working on myself more. For me, because I was fed that lie really of, oh, well, my life will start once I find my person, Mm -hmm. once I get married. I don't think I did spend enough time working on myself and becoming the best version of myself that I could be really understanding what I liked, what I didn't, what I wanted in five, 10 years down the road, regardless of whether I was married or not, regardless of whether I had kids or not. But because we are fed this notion of having to find a partner in order to be complete, we think that we can't be the best version of ourselves until we're married. So I think that also, you know, to bring it full circle, plays into what you're saying of, The other myth of, well, whoever you marry needs to bring out the best in you because Mm -hmm. they will complete you in Mm -hmm. some way. And really, the best marriages are the marriages where two people come together as whole and complete beings, also realizing, like you said, that no one is perfect and everyone has their issues. Heaven knows that I brought a myriad of issues to our marriage but you're coming as whole and complete as you possibly can. Mm -hmm. And I mean, biblically, iron is supposed to sharpen iron. Theoretically, you would make each other better versions of yourself just by bringing your whole self Mm -hmm. to the marriage. Yes. And I think that goes into another myth, 
which is, you know, if this person was my perfect match, like if this was my soulmate, which I have all sorts of feelings about that, (laughs) but if this person was my person, then it would be effortless and enjoyable and the marriage would just be easier and I would be more fulfilled because it was the right person. Is that true, Jen? No. I think sometimes we think that we've met our perfect match and we get married expecting that person not to change. Oh, yeah. And when that... Or not to want anything different or to pivot in their career. Uh Uh-huh. And when those changes or those career pivots or those mental shifts happen in the other person, you know, we're willing to allow them in ourselves, but we're not often gracious whenever our partner changes in Mm -hmm. some way. Mm -hmm. And I think that's when people start to say, oh, well, we just weren't meant to be together in the first place. And that's not necessarily the case because the reality of marriage is that it takes a lot of work. Absolutely. So, okay, let's kind of transition here. Talked about some of the myths of marriage. The main reality of marriage that I would want to stress because it's what I didn't know in my 20s before I got married is that marriage is complicated and staying married takes a lot of work. Yeah. I think it's a lot less about, you know, we use this idea of compromise in marriage. And yes, I could see how that would be a tool that we would use, but I feel like it's a much more negotiations where you're trying to not only just say, well, this is what I feel, this is what you feel, so let's just like do this thing in the middle, I guess, that neither of us is happy, which sometimes you have to do. But that takes out of the equation the nuances and complications of our own feelings of saying, well, why do I feel this way? And how can we understand each other better in this negotiation so that we can both kind of say, okay, well, now I see you. And now I understand why you're wanting the thing you're wanting. I mean, this happens a lot, like you said, with career choices. I mean, there's a lot of negotiations that have to happen if you switch careers or you get a promotion or you end up you know, getting an offer on a job to move somewhere. You have to be able to not just compromise, because I think a lot of resentment can come in that space if you're not careful, but the negotiation aspect of saying, this is what's really important to me. This is what's really important to you. Let's think strategically about how we can make this play out so we don't get in a space five years down the road where it's like, hey, this compromise isn't working anymore and I don't even know who you are anymore and it's too far gone. Absolutely. And again, I don't want to keep bringing it back to my own marriage, but that's really the lens through which I filter these conversations. Mm-hmm. Once we had kids, I started to realize that I wanted more of a career than what I had. And when we had initially gotten married, my husband and I had kind of laid out our marriage in such a way that it was the more quote unquote traditional mm-hmm. husband wife role of he's the breadwinner. I would stay home and take care of the kids. I always tease him and say it was a real bait and switch for you, wasn't it? Because <laughs> um, then we had kids and I was like, just kidding. I don't want to stay home. But it has been a constant negotiation of who does what, who sacrifices what, who gets to achieve their goal at this time, who needs to be with the kids right now, how do we come together and create common goals around careers and raising a family and all of those things. And there have been times, even recently, even in the last couple of weeks where I've realized, man, I don't like using the term win or lose, Mm -hmm. but sometimes the other person does get their way and you don't. So I do think that the notion of always compromising is just not true. Yes. It's not very realistic to think that way. And I think the biggest piece that I'm 
hearing is the communication. It's like that constant communication. This isn't a one-time conversation where you sit down and say, okay, this is how we're gonna do things from now on. It's like a weekly conversation. Let's pulse check, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm feeling this way now. I know I said I was fine last week, but I'm not fine anymore. And we need to talk about it and I can't just stuff it down because if I keep stuffing, then in two years, I'm not even gonna know why I'm mad at you. And suddenly I'm gonna find out that I'm really mad at you and I don't know why. And it's because I never told you exactly how I was feeling, even though I said, well, but I said I was fine. So I can't like not be fine now. And it's like, no, no, you need to talk about those things constantly. I would say that communication is the foundation yes. of my marriage. Painful and hard communication. The, the type you don't want to have. Absolutely. Yeah. I just don't think that I understood, one, how valuable good communication would be, mm -hmm. and two, how much we would have to continually communicate about our needs, our feelings, our wants. And I know you and I have talked about this a lot, about how helpful the Enneagram has been. Absolutely. In all of our relationships. But for my husband and I, that has been an incredible tool mm -hmm. for understanding how we can best communicate with one another mm -hmm. and what the other person needs, not just in terms of communication, but very physically, mentally, emotionally, how we view the world. I don't know that I'm qualified to give marriage advice to anyone, <laughs> but if I were to give marriage advice to any newlyweds, I would say make sure that you are constantly communicating with each other and not stuffing down the way that you feel and Find some tools. I think the Enneagram is a great tool. I know you do too, to figure out how the other person views the world and what they need mentally and physically and emotionally mm -hmm. and try to put yourself in their shoes. Yeah. I think we'll talk about some uh, love hacks mm. close to the end of this pod. And I think definitely some of those tools and just the energy and time you're investing by looking into these tools. I mean, any energy and time that you invest into your marriage is going to be helpful. I think we can all agree that there is no easy marriage, mm -hmm. that marriage is way harder, but it's also in many ways more beautiful. I don't want to take away from the fact that marriage has been more beautiful and more fulfilling than I thought in different ways. Yes. At the end of the day, 12 years in, I really like my mm -hmm. husband and enjoy doing so many things with him, mm -hmm. enjoy talking to him, and there is no one else who I would rather do all these hard things and yeah. have all these hard conversations yeah. with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's what we've got to say about... Uh, well, I guess we, we solved, solved marriage. We solved, <laughs> we solved marriage. That's it. We're done, guys. So thanks for coming. Okay. We are not marriage experts. No. We are not. We can only talk about our own lives. For However, sure. we did sit down mm -hmm. with Jennifer Jones, who is a licensed marriage and family therapist. She is a dear friend of mine. She is down in Southern California. Her practice is down there. She also is a professor at Biola. She wears many, many hats. She has a blog and an Instagram account called Shush Your Shame, where she talks about the power of story to revolutionize our lives and our relationships. I think one of my big takeaways was what she talked about later in the interview regarding holding space yes. for our partners. We're gonna let you guys listen to that because she just has so many beautiful things to say. So here's our interview with Jennifer Jones. 
Hey everyone, I'm so excited and I know Lauren's so excited to have um, my friend Jennifer Jones here today. Jennifer and I actually met via the magic of Instagram, but now we are real life friends. She is a marriage and family therapist. She is a newly minted college professor at Biola. She also has her own podcast and does a lot of really amazing things around uh, the power of story on Instagram and on her podcast. Jennifer, I'm going to turn this over to you though, and let you introduce yourself and tell everyone who you are. Thank you, Jen. Thank you, Lauren. I am excited to do this podcast Podcasts are one way that we get to show up for people, one, all over the world, right? Because you have access to people you never have access to. And then I get to connect, so they don't know, but I can see you. So it's nice to actually see you and talk to you and have a, an important conversation. But yes, my name is Jennifer Jones. I am a licensed marriage and family therapist, and I am a newly minted, I like that word, college professor at Biola teaching clinical issues and human diversity, which is really huge for me and I think for the university too. Sometimes I just still can't believe that I actually have that title, that there are young people, not all young, but who call me Professor Jones. It just sounds so funny to me. I am a clinical supervisor all the time. So full-time I am in private practice sometimes. So like today I'm here in the office for private practice and see my private clients, which I love, but more important than those roles that I have, I am a wife and a mother to three children. I feel like in this season, although I am wearing all of these hats, it's really easy to put our family and the most important people on the back burner as we're trying to like survive and be all the things and do all the things. And I am a woman who does enjoy working. I like to do all the things and be all the things, <laughs> but I am also trying to find a balance with that as well. It's really inspiring for me to watch you over the last year. You have really struck this lovely balance of having a job, also putting your family first I have always kind of looked at you as someone to model my social media activity after because you seem to always know who you are, what you want to say, and also when you need to take a step back from it. So do you want to tell people a little bit about what you feel like your main purpose for using social media is and how you've used that to really share your voice? I think that's been a really big process that I went through just last year. So last year in the beginning of the pandemic, I had just decided like, I'm going to create an email list. And then shortly after I was like, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to do a podcast season because we were home and I'm like, oh, I have time to do things I never thought I had time to do. And so I really committed to this calling that I, I believe that I have on my life is in terms of encouraging people to silence their shame through storytelling. I'm so passionate about that. And when the pandemic hit, I realized, well, now I have time to really go full force. And then I hit a wall. So I did the podcast. That was a lot of work, as you can imagine, um, yes. as a mom who <laughs> are all home. It was madness, to be quite honest, madness. Um, but I don't regret doing it because the stories that were shared including my own, I really believe that the ripple effects can go really far. I think God can really take that, you know, to the ends of the earth if he wants to. So it was worth it. But I did hit a wall where I felt like I don't know exactly what I'm doing. And it was hard, but I did decide to take a break. And so I took like a good 
two month break. So from like September to the beginning of this year, I said, I need to step back. I'm going to stay with my email list, um, but I'm not going to post on my main page right now because I needed to recenter and refocus. So I just felt like if I'm confused, if this feels overwhelming, then when I'm ready, when I am in a better place, God is still going to be able to use me. I really needed to take a step back from doing, 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 and really remember why I started. I can't be a good holder of space if I am not in a good space. And I know that as a therapist too, right? You know, you talk about the power of story within your story, which I'm going to link to, we're going to link to the podcast that you did on your own podcast about your story, because it's incredibly powerful. And I want people to go and listen to that. But you talk about some of the shame that was wrapped up in your story in your past. And you talk about how you can carry shame into relationships. You know, what are some of the things that you see people struggling with in their relationships, in their marriages? How does shame play a part in that? I think the shame plays a part in our relationships when we don't tell our story. Essentially, I think that in a relationship, communication is always important for that reason. It's not just someone that I can say, oh, hey, how are you doing? What's for dinner? I have the kids finish their homework, but how are you really? What stories are you bringing into that relationship? Usually when people are arguing or disagreeing or fighting, it's not about the thing on top. It's not the superficial thing. It's the story that they're telling themselves about what the person has done or said that they're really wrestling with. Mm -hmm. And you start to not see the person for who they are if you don't know what their story is. So if my husband does something or doesn't do something and whatever it is or that he does or doesn't do makes me feel unloved, but I just snap at him. Well, it will probably be more powerful for me to say, when you do that, it makes me feel unloved as opposed to yelling or saying something mean or sarcastic. And this sounds really easy but it's really hard. Yeah, <laughs> It's really hard to actually do in real life. Yeah. Especially <laughs> but when emotions do... are high. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Emotions are a big part of it too, right? So one of the things that I talk about with Shush or Shame is when you have a story of shame that's weighing you down, there are things you need to do to kind of unpack that. And so the first one is educate. And the reason why that is really good is because it does take some of the emotional reactivity out of what's happening. What are the facts of the situation? Not what I think you said, not what I think I heard. What are the facts? What am I actually dealing with here? And so that helps you to take a step back and get out of your feelings for a moment. And I think that's super important when we're talking about the stories that we carry and stories of shame. Once you can get to an emotional baseline with that, it's easier to tell your story and explain it to someone in a way that's encouraging instead of detracting from what's really important in that moment. And then once you encourage someone and they feel all bubbly and uplifted, they are going to be on your side. They're going to be able to see things from your point of view and say, okay, like I'm on board with you. I can see that. I can do that. And then they're going to continue that cycle the next time someone comes to them with something difficult or hard. So that is something that is really dear to my heart. I think I named it the compassion triangle because it made me think of the cognitive triangle, which is that thoughts, 
follow feelings, follow behavior. So there's a triangle. And so in my compassion triangle, it's educate, encourage, enlist. And that is the way that I believe that we can build compassion in all of our relationships, in all of our communities. I love that. I mean, that takes out the us versus them or me versus this person. It's like, let's get down to the real heart of it. Let's be on the same team and then like sift that out. Because realistically, if you are already in a relationship with someone or you want to be, that's got to be the goal is that you're on the same team. Exactly. We all know that right now the world needs a lot more compassion. Mm -hmm. That's, it's something that we're starving for and we have to be able to get it right with the people next to us before we can get it right on a global level. How have you seen the work that you're doing change? over the last year with everything that has happened in 2020, not just with quarantining with our spouses, but around the ongoing, you know, racial injustices and the the political divide. How have you seen your work change? I think the thing that I have heard the most from my clients is a rise in anxiety and loneliness. The pandemic has put a microscope on things that we've already been suffering from. Mm-hmm. I think people were already anxious, already lonely, but we were really busy yeah. and able to cover up our anxiety, self-medicate, hustle and bustle to and from and ignore or kind of distract ourselves. And that has been really highlighted in the pandemic. Loneliness too. I think people are generally lonely, but they fill their time with other things. And now that you can't really go anywhere or have some actual physical connection. I mean, imagine if you're single, but every day, Monday through Friday, you get to go into work at an office with lots of people. You kind of get to curb that loneliness for eight to 10 hours a day, but now you're just home. And if you don't have anyone around you, that can feel really lonely. And so it's not that your family dynamic has changed, but your environment has changed. And environment is huge when it comes to people's experiences. So that's what I've seen the most of is just a microscope on anxiety and loneliness. And with all of the stuff going on in terms of racial injustice, I think I hate that it's taken us being still to notice it more. However, I'm grateful because I think God can use this time to help us look at things and put them in front of our faces so that we can't ignore them. So there's a blessing in that. Also, with the pandemic, lots of people had a split in their relationships where they were like, oh, I can not really trust those people anymore. (laughs) They are not who I thought they were because we weren't forced to have those conversations. Or on the other hand, I think that there are people who are like, I get it. I have had friends that are like, I get it. I hate that it took me this to get it, but now I do. And I think that's just as powerful and important to focus on. You're not going to be able to change everyone and, and reach everyone, but the people that are willing I think those are important people to focus on. So I think the pandemic is a blessing in disguise if we choose to look at it that way. I love that. Yeah, it really shines a different light on it for sure. And I I think you're right. The idea that it didn't cause all all of us to feel these issues, the issues were actually already there. And I, Mm -hmm. I definitely seen that for myself and just like being still, like when you're still like, you notice more, you, you, you can't cover it up with the busyness. So good. <laughs> so good. Yeah. So in the midst of this pandemic, you started a podcast, you went to private practice 
And now you are uh, a college professor at Biola teaching a class on <laughs> diversity in counseling. What are some of the things that you're teaching around diversity and inclusion that you think are relevant to all of us? We just had Tisha who, you know, my sister-in-law Tisha yeah. as well. That's the first time that we met was at Tisha's book signing. Jennifer and yes. I were there for the first time. Um, so we just had Tisha on the podcast talking about the power of friendship and relationship to break down racial divide and to fight against racism. But from your perspective, as you're teaching, what are some things that you think we can all know and understand in being more inclusive and in working towards racial reconciliation? Obviously, it's a class for future therapists. However, I love to remind them that these are skills that you need as a human being. You need to be able to hold space for people, just period. One of the things that my students have brought up that had me thinking was that they understand their privilege, but they also don't have opportunities to use their privilege for good in terms of proximity. They aren't around people who don't look like them for the most part, or they're not around people who don't believe in what they believe in because it's a Christian university. I don't know if you know who Lisa Turkhurst is. Mm -hmm. yeah. So she posted something recently and tagged her daughter. And I just was scrolling through her daughter's page. I believe Lisa Turkhurst has two adopted sons that are black. So it's a white family and they adopted two black boys and raised them. And so they have black nieces. On one of the posts, she quotes someone, I want to say his name is Derwin Gray. Mm -hmm. And the quote is, proximity breeds intimacy. I think it's so true. If you are not around other people that are different from you, you do lack a certain level of familiarity and closeness that I do think is required to breed intimacy. And that can be seen across the spectrum. So Couples that, like in my house and my family, who we used to be ships passing in the night with our schedules, we're together a lot more right now. It forces you to be closer and hopefully develop intimacy. So you can look at it on that kind of micro level, but also on a macro level of who are the people that are around you. If you're not around people who don't look like you, how do you learn about those people or how do you learn how to be with them? How do you learn how to coexist with them? But yeah, I just thought that that quote is really powerful. Proximity breeds intimacy. And in the pandemic, I think that also highlights loneliness. You can't even be around the people that you're typically close to. And so we're all, I think, in need of being close. I think not only physically, but emotionally. At the end of the day, I just feel like Emotional intelligence is not highlighted the way that it needs to be. We as a society push education, 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 go to school, go to college, uh, start a business, be an entrepreneur, but emotional intelligence is not prioritized. And I really feel like that is the key to relationships, not whether you can make enough money to sustain your family, but how are we going to do with one another when we can't pay the bills emotionally how are we going to hold space for one another how are we going to keep this together instead of divorcing or going separate ways or ending friendships we're all about that cut off cancel culture that i just feel is a part of a lack of emotional intelligence that we have as a society 
and being willing to work through the hard stuff without just walking away. Yes, exactly. Can you talk a little bit about that holding space and what that looks like in a marriage and in a family? I think for me personally, and I'm sure other people can relate, is that it tends to be easier for me to hold space for my kids as opposed to my husband. And that's just being real. Mm-hmm. Same girl. Um, <laughs> that's just being real. I think, so I'll start with my kids because I think that's a little bit easier. With my kids, it's me deciding to pause and be still and listen, which can be really hard when I'm working at home because I'm juggling a lot of things and it's easy to just kind of like brush them off and, okay, just go ask dad, um, I'm working, um, but I can become a broken record. Instead of just stopping, sometimes I think we need to just stop. In therapy, you think of it as you yourself being a container. So if my clients come in, I need to be an empty container so that they can dump or pour whatever it is that they have into this container that I'm holding. So I have to be well and healthy and whole enough to do that for them. As a mom and as a wife, the best thing I can do to hold space is to take care of myself and prioritize my own health and well-being. And so for me, doing that during the pandemic has been, I was going to therapy bi-weekly and now I'm going weekly because I need someone who's able to help me release and pour and give me that container so that I can be in a better space for my family. So holding space, it's a a gift that you give to others, but I think you have to give yourself that gift first. Yeah, holding space. I don't know if I can define it or if I'm doing a good job defining it, but I just think it's being in a mental space to carry someone else's burdens or just hold someone's hand for a minute. I think listening is a big part of holding space, remaining curious and humble and not wanting to fix or respond or react with emotion because that's what you do as a therapist. I I don't have very intense emotional reactions in the therapy room like I would with my husband though, obviously, because there's a story there. We have a story together. He has a story that he brings to the relationship and I have a story that I'm meeting with his. In the therapy room, my story stays back here because that's what I'm doing professionally. And so someone else bringing their story to me is honestly like a joy and a privilege to me. It's harder to think of it that way with your spouse. I wish it wasn't so, but it just is. And so I think for me, listening and holding my tongue, holding space also means holding my tongue with my husband and not saying everything that I want to say. And, you know, I found that a lot of times if I'm able to hold space for him well, God does the rest. Oh, it's magical. That is so good. Mm-hmm. He does the rest. And I love, this is a joke that I have in my house. You know, when you tell kids to stop doing something over and over and over, and then God just like, they trip. I always say the Lord is swift. And he is because he's going to do a <laughs> lot better job, <laughs> a lot better job correcting and disciplining and bringing change than I am. But I have to move out of the way first. Oof, that's really good. Okay. Well, we could, you know, probably end the interview right there, but we're not going to. We have so many more things. (laughs) What would you say to people who are struggling to communicate in their marriage, in their relationships right now? I would say if you really are at a place where you can't communicate at all, I would recommend and encourage therapy a neutral person to come in and help you. I know that's not always accessible for some people, which 
breaks my heart. I know that therapy can be expensive, but I also know that since the pandemic, lots of people are aware of that and willing to be flexible in their fee. So I would say reach out for therapy if you can. I think for me and my husband, it's making time for one another. I think when you're raising a young family, it's really easy to get caught up in that. Children take priority. It's just, I don't know why that happens that way, but it does. And one of the women I was, I'm connected to through Biola. I met up with her for coffee before class a week or so ago. And she was advising that we do practical things. So whatever time your kids go to bed, making sure that it's at a time that allows you to have one-on-one time with your spouse. So like I know in our house, our kids can tend to go to bed a little bit late pushing the needle back a little bit and saying like, hey, like maybe we should have them go to bed by seven or eight so that we can have our time. Something practical like that so that you can connect with your spouse and really like see how they're doing or watch something that they like to watch, play a game. I know one time during the pandemic, me and my husband played Scrabble, I think. And I am not competitive whatsoever. I'm like, forget about it. I do not play games, people. I don't know. I'm just... I'm the serious one in the relationship. And it was so fun to just do something that I wouldn't normally do that we usually don't have time to do. So bending, being flexible, again, like finding out what your partner likes to do and pushing through it, even if it's not your thing. um, That's a good way of holding space too and showing up. Yeah, I think that's it. Making time, even if it's just like 20 or 30 minutes a day, making time. The other thing she advised was putting your phone away. So when you make the time for people, putting your phone away, which is really hard to do, really focusing on that person and putting your to-do list and all the other things that are on your mind, tucking them away for a little bit to focus on the person that is important to you, to show them that they're important to you. Yeah, that's really good. I am still going to have to take some more time and think about all the ways that I can hold space for my husband and my kids. I think this was really, really encouraging. Is there anything else that We didn't cover anything that you want to share about the work that you're doing, about relationships and how to make them more healthy. Really just going back to my mission for Shush or Shame would be to tell your story. (laughs) So find your safe people, your friends, your family, and tell your story. And I'm not talking about like what you did today or what you got at the grocery store, but there's usually something that we've been through that has brought us some source of shame or that's really hard to tell people. I think that's the most important story to tell because I think it's going to silence your shame and it's going to give people a better understanding of who you are as a person and and where you're coming from. It allows people to hear your heart. That's really, yeah, that's the heart behind what I encourage people to do on my social media. And hopefully in real life, I never want my social media to be a shadow of who I am. I I want it to be who I am in in every space. That's why I tell my story. (laughs) I tell my story so that I can show people, I can model for people. Look, this this is how you do it. And this is the fruit that can come from it. There is a beautiful, powerful story that every single person has. And if we can look at people in that way, I think that would change the world too. I think racism and all of this madness and craziness that is not of God would, it wouldn't be eliminated because we live in a fallen world, but I think it could really shift. Something that I talked to my husband about last year a lot in the midst of all of this was we have to talk about everyone's story. 
So, and some people may give me flack for this, but we do want to amplify voices of color. However, I also think we need to amplify white voices because when I think about the history of racism in our country, I think I think of my mom because my mom's white and my dad's black and my mom's family disowned her when she married my dad. And so I have no connection to my white family. I don't know my mom's side of the family at all because of that, that rupture in the family line because of her choice to marry someone who is black. I think to myself, because my mom is not someone who tells her story, what's stories is she holding that could unlock some generational trauma, some generational shame. That is the power of story. If you hold on to your story, I do think you're withholding yourself from receiving the love that you deserve and that you need, and you're withholding generations from healing. I I just can't help but wonder or how powerful it would be to have the all the pieces to the puzzle and not just some stories and some pieces, but everybody's story and how it's interconnected and what healing can come from that. And so that is my heart is to know everyone's story. And maybe it's because I'm mixed. I don't know. But I believe that God created me for such a time as this. And I think he created all of us for such a time as this. And we have an important story in the healing of the nation of our circles right next to us. Like we have the power to do that through telling our stories. Wow. Yeah. If you're wondering if you're the authentic person that you are on Instagram offline, you are a friend, you're the real deal. And you've been such a, an encouragement and a teacher and a friend to me. And I know that the things that you said here about story and about holding space and about your compassion triangle. Like this is going to reach people. It's going to help people. And I'm really, really grateful that you agreed to do this. I love how applicable that conversation was. I feel like Jennifer gave us some really great tools for really all different types of relationships, not just marriage, but especially in our families. And she's just, she's really the coolest. (laughs) She's so lovely. She's the real deal, like I said. So what would you say are some actionable steps that you think we can take towards a better marriage? Yes, uh, we can talk about almost like love hacks. Can we call them love hacks? I love a love hack. There's a little old Oh, that's what that song's about. Mm -hmm. Oh, I got it wrong all these years. Truly. Have I sung in every podcast that we've done so far? Is that your 2021 goal? It is now. Well, you're on your way, my friend. (laughs) So what's your love hack? I would say a lot of times we make assumptions. We do this with everyone. So... It's no surprise that we do it with our partners. And I think when you're especially in a fight or you're upset with the other person for something, I think you can easily see something that your partner's doing. Maybe you're at a party and they are like not talking to anyone or they're being rude or something like that. You could look at that and be like, I can't believe they're being so awful tonight. Gosh, couldn't they just put on a smile and like say hi to people, whatever. But if you switch your perspective and you try to reinterpret the negative behavior in a way that's more sympathetic than critical, it honestly changes everything. If you looked at your partner at that party and you said, you know what, I know they had a really stressful week. I don't necessarily know what that phone call was earlier that he came off of that he was upset about. These aren't necessarily his friends. He's doing this for me. 
if you just give the other person the benefit of the doubt, and if you need to have that conversation like, hey, out of curiosity, are you doing okay? I noticed you were maybe a little upset. Open up the conversation. It doesn't mean you, once again, repress anything. It's just looking at things with different eyes. I think that's what Jennifer was talking about in understanding the narratives Mm -hmm. that we're telling Mm -hmm. ourselves, the story that we're telling ourselves about the other person because they may have a very different story. Absolutely. Okay, one of my love hacks. Mm -hmm. I know this is gonna be a pumpkin spicy take, but I try to build habits or routines into my relationship and my week that will benefit our relationship. You're looking at me. I wish you guys could see Lauren's face right now. Mm -hmm, Jen, yes, tell us. So physical touch is one of my husband's love languages. It's not mine. Yeah, Honestly, you you're, you're loving the no hug COVID. Oh, no yeah. hug COVID is my favorite. <laughs> but I try to have sex with my husband at least twice a week. Oh, I'm sorry. I know it's a pumpkin spicy take, but I do. You're making us all look bad, Jen. You realize that, right? <laughs> <laughs> Who's the Enneagram one now? Jeez. I just want to do the right thing. Uh, maybe that's why you don't like hugs. No. Because you've got so much energy focused on this. Yeah. Can I call you Jenny two times? You can call me Jenny two times. <laughs> look. Here's the thing. I'm not saying, I'm not saying anything my husband doesn't know. I'm not saying that each of those two times I necessarily want to have sex before we have it. Once we start having sex, I'm like, yeah, this is great. We'll have sex. (laughs) But sometimes the blessing, if you will, follows the habit of doing it. Well, I know that's true. And I was listening to a really great TED Talk, which I do think at some point we should have a sex pod. Talk. Let's talk about sex, babe. You gotta save it for the sex talk. I've achieved maximum levels of singing on the <laughs> podcast today, you guys. Oh, I love it. <laughs> so I do think we should have the sex talk on the pod at some point. But she was saying, you know, in a committed relationship, it's not like this desire for your partner just like falls from the sky while you're folding laundry. Like it's it's not just <laughs> it's if you just like assume it's gonna be spontaneous, it's just like not always going to happen that way. So Find the routine. Yes, you are right. Love languages are a real thing, and that can lead to the desire. Like if oh, if my husband does the dishes and actually puts all the dishes in the dishwasher, which we've talked about is a oh, thing for me. It's a real and thing. And if he puts the dishes in the dishwasher how I like them, then I'm like, all right, I see you. I see you. But you're right. It's not just like spontaneously going to happen. You, you do have to schedule these things. And it doesn't take the romance or the excitement out of it. It's just if you don't make it happen. It's, it's not, not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And it does draw you closer to the other person. And so you're right, Jen. We should all be more like you. I don't think that's true. (laughs) No. (laughs) Okay, so do you have another love hack? Yes, I do. So in talking about expectations, the idea that we expect our partner to fulfill all of our needs in some way or to be everything to us, we need to more so look at ourselves and say, okay, in what ways are my needs maybe not being met in my relationship? If I've been looking to fulfill a need and feel like I'm chronically like disappointed in how we're doing at that as a couple, how my partner's doing at that, then I think I need to more so look at myself and say, in what ways can I maybe fulfill this need for myself? Or maybe I need to find some friend groups or different communities that can give me these other 
emotional needs met in some way. There's a professor, Elaine Chung, at Northwestern University, and she calls this idea social diversification. And it's the idea that we find outlets to turn to when we have emotional needs. So versus just looking at a small group of people, say like one or two people that we share our deepest, darkest things with and we expect to be there for us emotionally, finding more people, more communities and places where you have one group of friends that you can have fun with and just laugh and be ridiculous with. You have another group of friends that you can be serious and have those really intense talks and get out a lot of that frustration or those feelings. Maybe you have a community where you feel a sense of belonging and purpose. If you have more of those people out in the networks. You're not looking to your partner to have these really serious emotional talks all the time or also be that your playmate and have these funny goofy moments together and you you will have those. It's right. just you're not looking to them to be that for you. They can be those things at different times, yes. but they don't have to be all those things at the same time yes. or all the time. Yes. I totally agree. Once I learned in my marriage that honestly, I didn't have to take all of my anxieties or the deep inner workings of my head or my world or my heart to just my husband, mm -hmm. that I could either talk to a therapist about it, yeah. I could journal it, I could mm -hmm. talk to a friend about it, and then, yes, I could share it with my husband, but my husband, we're gonna talk about the Enneagram as my love hack here in a minute, he's an Enneagram 5, and he doesn't want me to spring the full weight of my emotions on him, which I was wont to do at the beginning <laughs> of our marriage. So once I learned that I could write in my journal, talk to my therapist, call another friend mm. first, maybe process things a little bit initially yes. before I went to my Enneagram 5 husband who is not a very emotional processor it actually made our marriage better. And it wasn't that I was keeping things from him. Mm -hmm. It was that I was learning how to process things prior to coming to him and who to process those things yeah. with prior to coming to him. Yes. And I think it is very hard for us to have people that we trust to discuss those very serious things, especially in relation with our husband. You realize my husband probably wouldn't love and it's probably not healthy for me to be sharing all of these things with close friends or family members. Some of that stuff is private and your spouse maybe not, won't want you divulging these things. Honestly, when I started seeing a therapist, that helped me so much in the sense that I could go to this person who I was paying and had an allotted amount of time to sit and listen to me and I could say whatever I wanted and it doesn't leave the room. And I just needed that. I just needed a place to put all of these feelings and emotions because they were real. They did need to be worked through. They, they needed to be untangled and understood and looked at. And that was a safe place to do that because my husband, I'm, he hasn't taken the test. I'm pretty sure he's an Enneagram 7. He doesn't love negative emotions. He's a very positive person. So I don't think he loves sitting in negative emotions. So I'm understanding that in a sense that if I do have these negative emotions that I can work out in a safe space, like a therapist office or a therapist Zoom meeting, I should say. Yes. <laughs> that has helped our relationship exponentially. I would also like to add that I don't think it's good to go to your friends. This is why I think a therapist is important. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's good to go to your friends and basically 
complain about your husband mm-hmm. or pop off about something that he has done. Yeah. Because you as a spouse will be able to get over something a lot easier than a friend mm-hmm. or your parents. Like I know my mom has always been really good about this saying, I don't necessarily want you to come to me with what is going on in you and Russ's relationship because you will get over it, you will move on, and I will still be viewing it through the lens Mm. of, you're my daughter, I wanna protect you. Mm -hmm. So I think therapy is an incredible, it's not even a hack, it's an incredible tool. It is, yeah. Within a marriage, whether that is one-on-one, me going to therapy or couples therapy. Mm -hmm. My husband and I are doing this therapy workshop through OnSite. Oh, that's great. Right now. And we're both going through it individually. And then we come together and talk about it. Yeah. It's been really interesting to do together. Mm -hmm. And then I also see my own therapist. Again, I think people think that they can do this all on their own. Yeah. That we can do life all on our own. That we can do marriage on our own. And we can't. And we were never meant to. Yes. And there are tools like the Enneagram, like therapy, like love languages Mm -hmm. that are available to us in order to improve our marriages, improve our lives. And it's my hope that in listening to this podcast that people will feel less alone. Absolutely. There is so much power in understanding that other people are going through the same things that you are. It's easy for us to sit on Instagram, especially after Valentine's Day where everyone's posting the flowers they got or their sweet date with their husband. And you know, there's a lot of us that aren't in the situations where we can, we have another person. There's a lot of people that felt lonely this past week. There's a lot of people that are in painful moments in their marriages or their relationships. And that wasn't fun to see all these people with their smiling, happy faces on their date nights together. And you know what? That's not real life either. So if we're just looking at Instagram and seeing all these pictures of everyone in their seemingly happy lives, you can feel this isolation and think, well, my marriage just must not be working because we don't, we don't look that happy and we didn't go on a date and I didn't get flowers. I think we all need to talk about these things more, be open about them. And I think if you are in a really difficult spot right now in your marriage, I do encourage you to go to therapy, to have a safe space. If you, especially if you don't have friends and family, which I think a lot of us don't feel comfortable talking about these deep, serious issues with our close friends and family. We don't want to put the burden on them. We also just, like you said, don't want to expose things that they won't be able to forget and that will play a part in their relationship with our significant other. Yeah, and I want to end by saying, I I hope this doesn't sound like an afterthought because it's really not, but one of the things that I've tried to do over the last few years in particular, before I even go to a therapist, before I go to a friend, before I write in my journal, before I go to my spouse, is making it a matter of prayer. Mm -hmm. Because prayer changes things, God changes things, and I know that not everyone who listens to this podcast is religious, but for me personally, I can't separate my marriage, I can't separate my family, I can't separate my struggles from my relationship with God, and bringing all those things Mm -hmm. before him and to him and filtering all those things through him. And I am super grateful that my husband and I are, you know, on the same page spiritually, but we've talked about a number of times in the past year probably 
just our need to continually make things a matter of prayer because prayer changes things. Mm -hmm. And I do, at the end of the day, believe that. It's not, God's not a genie. It's not going to happen overnight. But I have seen over time me continuing to commit things to prayer and seeking God's will on certain things within my marriage or in other areas of my life. And they do, over time, change. Maybe not the way that I anticipated that they would. Maybe not the way that I asked God to change them. Maybe it's more me who did the changing. Mm, Yes. But things change. I couldn't agree more. That's a fantastic way to end the conversation of marriage. And I'm sure we will be talking about love and marriage in lots of the pods because it's all very relevant to us. There was a lot of things going on this past week. Maybe too many things to recount and too many things to pop off about. But we do have a few that we are going to scratch the surface of. Is that right, Jen? We don't try to make Bachelor Nation intersect <laughs> with our hot stuff or our popping off. It just does. It just happens. There's yes. a lot going on. But first, there were a lot of apologies this week. Yes, we got a lot of apologies. The first apology was from your friend, your boyfriend. My bee friend? Your bee friend, <laughs> Justin Timberlake. So did you watch the Britney Spears documentary? I did. Okay. For those of you who don't know, there's a documentary on Hulu from the New York Times about the conservatorship that Britney Spears is in with her father. Father. Mm -hmm. And many people feel that she's basically in jail of some sort. Yes, because they are in charge of her person and her estate. And it is all being cared for under her father, Jamie, who they don't have the best relationship necessarily. So we kind of all knew this was happening, but she's been in it for, I think, like 12 years now. And she's, I don't want to say a fully functioning person because we've all seen her Instagram posts and they have caused some concern. But in a lot of ways, she has been performing and working and making money and all of these things under this conservatorship, which is normally only for elderly folks or people with like severe mental issues that cannot manage their own Lives Lives. and decisions. Yes. Yes. So we don't necessarily know exactly what medical information the courts have that are keeping her in this conservatorship, but the New York Times documentary did a deep dive into Britney Spears and how everything has escalated since her start. I didn't think they did a very good job, so it was very much not exposing any new information. And this could also be a result of the conservatorship, that they didn't get any good interviews. I mean, the closest person they had was Felicia. Right, Felicia went with Britney from like 13 on and toured with her her and took care of her while her parents stayed in Louisiana with Jamie Lynn. There's a lot of issues going on here. Yes. But one thing, I mean, yes, to Lauren's point, the documentary is horrible, terrible (laughs) reporting on the New York Times. (laughs) Literally most of the people interviewed were paparazzi, people from like extra TV or protesters who were outside of the courthouse trying to free Britney. Yeah, including a former MTV VJ. Poor Dave Holmes. (laughs) Yeah, we weren't getting like the real inside scoop or anything here. They were just bringing this all to light because the court case is still ongoing and there was a revisit to it this last week in terms of her conservatorship. Basically, we're kicking up the dust of Britney's past to see if any of it shakes out and 
makes us rethink what has happened to Brittany or how we could help Brittany moving forward. Yes, and they made a few points in the documentary. They had a, definitely a perspective, and I think they were trying to get us to feel two things. One was sorry for our role as the public that were so obsessed, especially back then, with the celebrity culture, Paris Hilton, Lindsay Lohan. We had all these people that we were just consuming all of this news and media. They did make it seem in the documentary that this is all of our faults, that we are so obsessed with. And I understand that. I think that there's truth to that. I think another thing they wanted us to feel is that rather than Britney being the villain in the demise of her relationship with Justin Timberlake, because she allegedly cheated on him, she was actually the victim because the patriarchy is the one who put out all of these messages about Britney cheating on Justin and being a homewrecker. Well, what I mean, I would say Wade Robson was the homewrecker in this experience. So the concept is that Britney had cheated on Justin with Wade Robson, who was one of Justin's real good friends. They were like really close because he was the choreographer for Justin Timberlake and for Britney Spears. Sorry, I know way too much about this. So like, let me get going. So so the idea was that she had cheated on Justin with Wade Robson. For the most part, we believe this to be true. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So... In Justin's like debut, he also had a song called Crimea River. He did a music video where the people in the music video were very closely associated with Britney Spears and Wade Robson. Like they looked very much like them. And the idea in the music video was that he was like catching them in the act cheating. Because of this music video, they're saying, you know, Britney got all of this heat. She got written about really poorly in the media. And I think more than anything, like you said, this is a product of a system and a structure that celebrates the white male and puts down the female in some way, saying that she was, you know. I'm not gonna use the words. I'm not gonna use the words either. So so all of this, promiscuous. Promiscuous girl. Oh, Oh, gee. I can't stop. Wow, you really dug that one up, Can't stop, won't stop. And his career skyrocketed. Meanwhile, her career kind of went south a bit. But let's be honest. This wasn't like a split-second turn for Britney that this happened and then she, you know, kind of went off the deep end. It was a slow... Slow burn. It was a slow burn to her getting to the place where she, you know, was bald with a umbrella beating up a paparazzi's car. So I don't think we can blame Justin for what happened to Britney necessarily, but they made a real point that he was kind of the villain in this story because in the same breath, they happened to bring up the Super Bowl with Janet Jackson, which is being called Nipplegate. Is that, I think that's what it's we- always been called Nipplegate. <laughs> yes, it has always been called Nipplegate. So now, like, however many years later, we are bringing up this whole Super Bowl thing to probably some millennials who never even saw it. Like, this is maybe them hearing about all of this for the first time. Does oh, that yeah. sound right? So for you millennials who don't know what Nipplegate is, during the Super Bowl in 2004, I believe, Justin Timberlake and Janet Jackson performed together. There was a specific part of the performance where he was going to rip off a part of her clothing around her areola. <laughs> but not fully expose the areola. Yes. However, there was a wardrobe malfunction. Mm -hmm. 
her nipple popped out yes. on national television during the Super Bowl. For like four seconds. It was a real moment. Conservative Christians everywhere, their heads exploded. Oh, sorry, it was half a second. Again, conservative <laughs> Christians everywhere, their heads exploded. I remember this being a big deal. Oh, it was a huge deal. And there was a huge backlash against the NFL for yeah. allowing the this. The FCC was really involved. They did an investigation into it. Fast forward to 2020, whenever JLo is on a pole in the middle of the Super Bowl. Yeah. And Nipplegate doesn't look so bad anymore, does it, guys? <laughs> so. Let's just say the Super Bowl halftime performances have not been the level of morality that we should be measuring things against. Anyways, the problem what happened, is what happened, but the structure of society and the way this was all set up basically demonized Janet Jackson. In a lot of ways, Justin Timberlake did not feel the brunt of this in his career or personally in the media at all. And that is just a fact. I mean, the Grammys, they were both supposed to perform separately at the Grammys. She was asked not to perform. He still kept his performance. Because this happened, she was basically outlawed in a lot of the televised events that were going on in the future, whereas it did not affect Justin Timberlake at all. It's a I common... don't disagree with that. No, I think that's I think that's exactly factual of like what happened, and I think it's incredibly unfortunate. I think we can all look at that and say that that is a real shameful thing that structurally the media and this country does in general to these types of incidents and how they look at women in a scandal versus a male in the scandal. So this went on in 2004. We are kicking it all back up here in 2021 because of this documentary and people just went off. We have this very digital mob that kind of came after Justin, was tagging at him, commenting, on how he was kind of like the ringleader of what happened to Britney, what happened to Janet, like all in the same breath. This is like, this is on him. So he addresses it. So he addresses it. And I read his apology and you guys can all see it on his Instagram. I'm not going to read it, but he did a good job of apologizing. And he said, I need to personally apologize to Britney and personally apologize to Janet. He very much took accountability for what he had done and the role he had played in all of this. And of course, brought up the fact that like, this was an issue of the system that we're in, but that he played a role in it and that he ultimately benefited from it. And so he was apologetic for it. And I think in my opinion, that's all someone could do. And I think what he did was appropriate. I'm not sure if people have accepted this or embraced this because people aren't very happy with anyone at the moment. I wonder at what point an apology is not enough mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and at what point action does need to be taken to absolve yourself or can you absolve yourself of what happened in the past. And I know a lot of people take issue with Justin because he has built his career on the backs of black culture in many ways. Mm -hmm. And he has spoken out in recent years against racism and in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. And I believe that he and Jessica have donated some of their money towards various anti-racism causes, which is great because if you have that much money, you need to be giving a lot of it away to important causes. I hope that he will continue to do more, not just say more, Mm -hmm. to affect change because he is in a position of power 
as a white male who is part of this system, whether he wants to be or not, yes, I hope that he will take more action to move towards change in the industry. Yes, I think that's right. I think, like you said, an apology is maybe the first step, but it's only one step in others that need to happen moving forward. And I think other people that are in the industry need to look at this and say, all right, we all need to be paying more attention to this. Speaking of change and apologies, mm-hmm. a lot happened in the Bachelor franchise. There were a lot of apologies in the Bachelor franchise this week. Very necessary apologies. Very necessary apologies, especially from one Mr. Christopher B. Harrison, who I still don't know if his middle initial is B, but I just like to say that. Yeah, I hope he apologizes for his romance novel soon, but I think this was this was way more important, so... No, I think this is actually the demise of Christopher B. Harrison. I think so too, yeah. And we saw that this week, for sure. And also an apology from who we think is the front runner in Matt James's yeah. season. Yeah. Rachel Kirkconnell. Yes. So for context, Rachel has some has a problematic past. Racist past. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not even yes. problematic. She's a racist past. Let's just say it. Yes. She's from Cumming, Georgia. Which I believe is historically one of the most racist cities in definitely Georgia, potentially the United States. I was hearing in terms of that county that it's specifically known as one of the most racist counties in America. My question, my first question is, how does ABC continue to allow people with racist pasts on to the show? Yeah, I would be really interested to understand their vetting process for these gals, I bet it's not very extensive. It can't be because what came out in the last few weeks is that Rachel Kirkconnell had posted some very problematic things on her Instagram. She went to an antebellum South party in 2018. Not even 10, 15 years ago. This is like two years ago, guys. And being from California, I did not know that these things existed. I understood that there were plantations that folks would get married at as venues and that type of thing happened, which is, it's a thing issue in itself. But I hadn't heard of these kind of old South parties. And I was really concerned by the fact that these were still going on to this day. I just did not know about this. Sure, I grew up in the South. I knew that these things happened. One of the things that Rachel Lindsay, we're gonna talk about her interview with Chris Harrison and some of the problematic and racist things that Chris Harrison said in that interview. One of the questions that she asked in her interview with Chris Harrison in relation to Rachel going to these antebellum South parties, in relation to these antebellum South parties in general, is as a black person, who would I be at the party? Yes, because they're celebrating the South at these parties. They're, They're celebrating the old South. Right. They're dressing up, they're going to the plantation, and they're having this very like themed Old South party. So Rachel would be a slave. Yeah. At these parties. And these parties, whether people say that they glorify slavery or not, because I am sure that all these people who go to these antebellum South parties are like, but we didn't own slaves or we don't believe in slavery. We know it's wrong. It doesn't matter. Yes. um, Rachel Lindsay's co-host on her podcast, he said something really interesting, which was basically, he said, if the theme of what you're going to is celebrating racism, it is racist. 100%. And I think that sums up why this is so problematic, because they are celebrating something that was very racist. It's celebrating the system of racism in the past, 
So yes, it is racist and it is a problem. So Rachel Kirkconnell, who we think is a front runner on Matt James' season, Matt James being the first black bachelor in franchise history, mm-hmm. she has made this and a few other racist or potentially racist posts. Chris Harrison was asked about these posts on an interview with Rachel the Lindsay. The thing that was so interesting about this interview, sorry, it was on Extra. Yes. Um, so he did an interview with her on Extra, and the interview wasn't even to talk about Rachel McCurk. Sure. Connell, he was just there to talk about the latest episode. Yes. And he had mentioned something which caused Rachel Lindsay to like poke a little bit further and ask him about his thoughts on the controversies around this contestant, Rachel. And Chris Harrison just went off. I mean, without really any other questions from Rachel Lindsay, he just went off. And I was like, Chris Harrison, did you not take your meds? this morning like are you okay is this you just exposing how you really feel about everything he talks about the woke police oh he said the word woke at least 50 times no white person i mean i think black people might even argue that they shouldn't be saying the word i don't woke. think what anyone word woke i don't mean? think no anyone should be, should be saying, saying woke yeah but chris says that the woke police are coming after rachel for these posts about her antebellum south party he talks about how was it okay for her in 2018 to go to the antebellum south party maybe certainly it's not okay to go to the antebellum south party in 2021 but maybe it was okay in 2018 no chris no chris (laughs) it was never okay it doesn't matter when it was never okay yeah to make that distinction was very interesting no very ignorant yes he's he's talking about giving her the benefit of the doubt giving her grace and here's the thing is that various things have started coming out from about six weeks ago when the first episode started airing uh one of the gals that she went to high school with came out and said that she was harassed by rachel in high school for dating a black man there was all these other things that have consecutively come out over time and we have not heard a peep from contestant rachel so that is I think one of the most difficult parts about all of this is everyone is like well where is she why isn't she saying anything maybe she's contractually not able to but in the interview Rachel Lindsay confirms that she can say whatever she wants on her social media like she could have come out and made an apology but it had been six weeks and she had still not said anything and I think that's why everyone is like why isn't she saying anything why isn't she coming out so Chris Harrison is very defensive of her saying we need to give her the benefit of the doubt, all these things. And to be honest, I think part of this is I think that she's the one that he picks. I think he picks Rachel, and I think that's why Chris Harrison was getting so sweaty about all of this. I think he was defending her, the Bachelor franchise, because if she's the one at the end, people are going to be like, not okay with it. Because he also made this, oh, he made this comment where he said, oh, well, she's dating Matt, you know, and he is a black man and says, so then, you know, what about that? Why aren't we talking about that? I mean, she, she almost to this point that she must not be racist if she's dating Matt. And I just think that is really untrue. Flawed. It's very flawed. You can be married to a black man and be racist. You can have black children and be racist. Yes, there's a lot of ignorance and there's a lot of things that can still be involved in all of that that still needs to be brought to light and 
not by us, but like if they are really truly in a relationship, then they need to be having these very difficult conversations. But all of it was just feeling a little weird. Like why is Chris going off? So Chris goes off and as we will talk about in a minute, he is eventually put on leave from the Bachelor franchise. Yes, he makes a couple apologies, but in the midst of this, he says he's stepping aside for a time. We don't know what that means, but he is not going to be at the after the final rose, which they do following the episode's finale that comes out. And I also think it's because she's the one that's there after the final rose and he should not be the one interviewing them. I think Rachel Lindsay should be the one interviewing them. I think she should. But have you seen some of the things that Rachel Lindsay has come out and said? Because I think at this moment in time, she has her own podcast. She has a really good conversation about how she was feeling about all of this. And in real time, while they are doing the podcast, they see that contestant Rachel puts out an apology and they read it on the podcast. And it's fascinating because in real time, we're like getting the reactions to it. She did put out a very good statement on her Instagram. And it's just one of those things, like we said, it's a great first step. We'll see how her actions follow all of this. But Rachel Lindsay has come out since then about the franchise. And let's remember that she is under contract for, I think it's 10 years to not say anything negative about the franchise. That is like, she can get sued, they can come after her. But I think in this moment, she's like, you guys can't, you guys can't do anything to me right now. You guys, are you serious? You can't touch me. Like, I'm sorry, but I'm gonna say what I wanna say. And she's standing up for her own feelings, but she's got a lot of people looking at her right now saying, okay, how are you, how are you feeling about this? What are your thoughts? And when she comes out after the 10-year contract's up, whoo, I can't imagine what she's going to say about the franchise. I applaud Rachel Lindsay for everything that she has done to truly work to try to affect change in the franchise. I think that this particular incident is a great reminder of something that I have found to be true, that the work of racial reconciliation, the work of being anti-racist is ongoing. It's ongoing for me. It's ongoing for you. Mm -hmm. There is still so much work to be done. Mm -hmm. The fact that so many people think that antebellum South parties are still okay. Mm -hmm. The fact that someone who is in such a position of power and influence like Chris Harrison would feel justified in basically defending racist actions, Mm -hmm. also problematic. Racism is still very prevalent. Racist thoughts are still very prevalent. I don't want to point the finger at other people without pointing it back at myself and saying, I still have to work through my flawed thinking around race and racial reconciliation and racial justice and the way that I view people of color in certain scenarios. It is a constant ongoing thing. And when we think the work is done or the problem has been solved, that's a problem. Yes, especially if we're not directly affected by it. Yes. And I think that's the other thing that we need to think through right now is none of this is going to feel good as a white person. It's not going to feel good to find out that what we've been doing all of this time is continuing the racist thinking in American society. That's going to be hard for us to come up against. But instead of being defensive, I think we need to sit back and our instant, our first thought when someone says, hey, that's not okay, is to say, okay, let me sit. Let me sit in this and think about it. And let me assume that I'm wrong first. Let me assume I'm wrong first. Let me do the work to understand 
why I'm wrong and how I can do better. And then let's go from that place. Because I think, yeah, you're going to immediately, a lot of people are feeling defensive and saying, well, oh no, I didn't, like, I'm not racist. I didn't mean that. So it's like, start from a place of like, I don't know, because I am a person that is white and privileged. And then let me understand from that place. And let me take it one step further. And next week, we are going to kind of do our February wrap-up. Oh, it's going to be a full pop-off. Pretty excited. (laughs) We are also going to talk about our main takeaways from reading the book, How to Fight Racism. Yes. By Jamar Tisby. We've been reading through his book this month, and I've been popping in and out of the Facebook book club that Mm. he's been doing. Mm -hmm. So we'll kind of wrap up and talk about some of our thoughts and what our next steps are. Yes. As far as actually taking action and locking arms with people who are doing the work of anti-racism. And I think that it's important to continue to have these conversations because clearly what happened in the Bachelor franchise this week shows us we are all still flawed in our thinking. We still have a long way to go to really fight racist beliefs and actions and thoughts. And when we stop talking about it, when we think that the problem is solved, that's a problem. Yes. So for the Bachelor franchise, just because you now have leads that are people of color, that does not absolve you from all of the other structural racism that is happening within that show, and which has happened in it since its conception. So we are hoping that they do better and that they address this. And we will see what happens. I honestly, I think, I think he picks Rachel. And I think that's why all of this caused such a stir for within The Bachelor producers and the franchise. So we are going to (laughs) continue at least to watch the rest of this season because I'm interested to see how this all plays out. I'm interested to see who he chooses. I'm interested to continue this dialogue around race and racism in the franchise, outside of the franchise. We will have our Bachelor recap up on YouTube Mm -hmm. today as well. So look for that. As always, you guys, we truly feel that life is too short to stay silent. Thank you for raging with us. 